turn our eyes upon Jesus and after a strong convictional testimony of Dr. Francis, uh, we just need to be about Christ and we need to proclaim him and the end of all things is his glory and honor. We could just go home. In fact, along that lines, one of my students from OT class wrote this to me. All you have to say is, the word of God is true. <laughs> and those in my OT, OT survey class know that inside joke. So does Dr. Duncan. He said that would be okay. Uh, but I do meet with Dr. MacArthur later today, and I don't think he would say that's okay. Well, it is a joy to be with you. It is an honor. Shall we pray and turn our eyes upon Christ? Oh God, our Father, our only hope, our only aspiration, the reason and the purpose of our entire existence when you made this world is that our eyes would be fixed upon your Son, who is the hero. Our affections were paid by his blood, our new life was bought by his resurrection. We are about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we approach now this issue of Genesis 1 through 3, O oh God, may it be because we desire to glorify the Son, who is distinguished because he is the creator and not the creation, who is the one through whom all things came, and because we want to exalt his uniqueness and his exclusivity and his majesty, we defend this doctrine with all our soul. May that be our conviction this morning. Give us humility and eager hearts, even as we cover a familiar topic, that this topic would be one done intentionally to honor the Savior who died and lives for us. And so, O oh God, may you be honored now. May you redeem this time, not for our benefit, but for your glory. And so, Lord, magnify Christ. Even as we go through the academic river, magnify Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Some of you hearing that this is the Creation Summit and that I'm about to speak on creation might be thinking to yourself, creation again? Why? It's like beaten to death here at the Master's University. And in response, some things might be overstated, but they are true and they need to be said. Some things might be overstated, but they are true and need to be said. It reminds me, when I was a freshman coming into this very institution, I was going to take 21 and a half units my first semester. And I was a music major. Thank you. And you say, well, so what that you're a music major? Well, that means with 21 and a half units, you're taking approximately 56 classes and are required to practice approximately 100 hours a day. And so the response was always the same. You're crazy. That's unwise. You're going to die. That was said to me over and over again. Wow, Saturday, the pool party the next day, when you visit faculty, staff, homes, when you meet the majors with your professors, the reaction and response was always the same. You're crazy. That's unwise. You're going to die. In fact, even in the semester, oh, uh, yeah, who's there? It's your RA. Oh, yeah, what's up? Hey, I heard you're taking, yes, 21 and a half units. I'm crazy, that's unwise, and I will die. I know. Well, as long as you know, Abner, I guess that's okay. Have a good day. 
Now it's after Thanksgiving, and you know what happens after Thanksgiving. It's the infamous Christmas concerts, which drains your life and your time and your grades. <laughs> and they asked me, hey, Abner, are you ready for Christmas concerts? And I said, what? What's that? And they said, the thing we've been practicing for all semester? You know, it's like day and night. It's going to occupy all your time. You're not going to get any sleep or rest. Your grades could even suffer. And I said, oh. And then as the truth began to sink in, I said, oh, no. <laughs> and as I walked back to my dorm and the truth sank even deeper, I said to myself, I'm taking 21 and a half units. I'm crazy. This is unwise. And now I'm going to die. <laughs> Some things might appear to be overstated, but they are true. And they need to be said. And we should listen to them. We should listen to them. <clears throat> now, having said this, I suspect that there's another reason for sometimes our attitude and response of this again. Why? It's not just the repetition. It is a question. It is a question of, does this matter? Is this really important? Is this essential? After all, these issues cause so much controversy. Why can't we all just get along? Now, to be sure, the Bible teaches us how to talk with and handle others. In 2 Timothy 2, one of my favorite passages about this very idea, Paul instructs Timothy and says, you must be patient, you must be gentle, you must be loving, and you must be humble. And I love that word for humility. It means to not think of yourself. Ego should never enter the conversation. But having said that, Paul still says, but you need to be able to teach, and you need to pray that people come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because truth matters. Truth is vital. Truth is essential. And that's what I want us to wrestle with and understand this morning. You can't just say, oh, well, it just causes controversy, so let's just sweep it under the table. No, the issue of Genesis 1 through 3 and its historicity are important. They are vital. They are essential. And along that line, I want to give us two reminders, two reminders of why this matters. Two reminders of why the issues of Genesis 1 through 3 are important and essential. Two reminders so that we will have a conviction on this subject. And here are those two reminders. First, the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. And second, there are consequences when we abandon the doctrine. There are consequences when we abandon the doctrine. The clarity of Scripture and the consequences. Two reminders. But a quick caveat before we get into that. Just like smoke and fog make smog and breakfast and lunch make brunch and a tiger and a lion make a liger, well this message is what I call a lermon. And you say, what is that? That's a lecture sermon. Some of you might be thinking, wait, I thought this was a chapel message. Why are we getting into all the academics and nerdy stuff? I mean, I thought this was a sermon. No, this is a lermon. This is a lecture sermon. And others of you are thinking, wait a minute, you're not nerdy enough. What about this technical argument and that one? And why are you exhorting us? What's up with that? This is a lerman. It's a lecture sermon. So that's part of it too. Basically, a lerman acquits me of all criticism. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. But I hope you understand the tension that we're trying to balance this morning. And with that in mind, let's go into the first reminder that the Bible is clear. 
and that the Bible is clear, the clarity of Scripture. When talking about the issues of Genesis 1 through 3, we are often overwhelmed by the options. There are so many factors. There are so many views. There are so many interpretations, and we just think to ourselves, well, forget it. I'm never going to figure this out. Let's just talk about something more important. That is to say, let's talk about something that's a little more clear. Don't let the supposed subterfuge sway you. The Bible is clear. God has spoken. He has not hidden his word. He has not veiled his intent. The Bible is clear. And I want to walk you through that this morning. And the way I want to do this is similar to how C.S. Lewis walks us through the claims of Christ. Christ is either a lunatic because he doesn't know what he's talking about, or a liar because he's lying, or his claims are true and he is Lord. In the same way, Genesis 1-3 through is either miscommunication because it's not clear, it is myth because it's not talking about history, or it is myth-busting because it does talk about history, which sets up a theology that busts myth, whether it be ancient or modern. It is either miscommunication, myth, or myth busting. And by process of elimination, we can walk through these different options and come to a conclusion. So let's go to that first option, miscommunication. Miscommunication. Miscommunication would argue that the Bible in Genesis 1 through 3 has ambiguities that allow us to accommodate certain ideas. For instance, some would argue in Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3, that there are gaps in those verses, allowing for a long passage of time. This is called the gap theory. Now, the gap theory revolves around what we call in Hebrew a disjunctive clause. A disjunctive clause is a clause that begins with a conjunction followed by a non-verb. And you can do a parallel search. You can go through your Old Testament and find parallel grammatical constructions to Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And there are about a thousand of them. And you could go through each of the a thousand instances. And if you do, guess what you're going to find? No gaps. No gaps. And there's a reason for that. You didn't even have to go through all a thousand instances. You could have just gone to any major Hebrew grammar, opened it, and it would tell you that a disjunctive clause by nature defines more details about the main verb. A disjunctive clause by nature tells you the simultaneous circumstances that surround the main occasion. Inherently, there are no gaps because of a disjunctive clause. Inherently, that's its grammatical function. The text is clear. The gap theory doesn't work. Still, some people might say, well, what about the day-age idea that every day is an age? Are we sure that it's a 24-hour day in Genesis? Like I said, this is the day-age theory. Well, think about Genesis 1, verse 5 with me. It says there was evening and there was morning one day. One day. Some of your translations might have first day, but the Hebrew clearly says one day. And you say, one day, first day, a day, what's the difference? One day is what we call a counting number. First day is what we call an ordinal number. One of them counts the amount, the other orders and shows you chronology. And even though the second through seventh days of Genesis are all ordinal numbers, the first day is actually a counting number because it tells you what counts as a day, what amounts to a day, and that is evening and morning. Genesis defines what a day is. And before you use this as a weapon, you need to understand why God did this. God reminds us that he is so sovereign, he not only creates time, he defines time. He defines its organization and structure. That is the extent of his sovereignty. And with that, the text is intentional, and it is clear. 
A day is evening and morning, by definition, of God himself. And the day-age theory doesn't work. Now, at this point, somebody might say, well, what about phenomenological language, the language of experience, sunrise and sunset and the like? Since Genesis 1 through 3 has that kind of language, isn't it a little bit unclear? Now, initially, we can respond to this by saying that the language is sufficiently clear. People understand what you're talking about when you say sunrise and sunset. Even more than that, no one gets confused when you say something like, I'm going up to San Francisco. Oh, you mean you're flying in a plane up? And you're never going to come down because you went up to San Francisco? No one interprets it that way. We all understand what you're generally denoting there. The language is sufficiently clear. Even more, the language actually ties what you're talking about to time and space. The language ties what you're talking about to time and space. The very definition of phenomenological language is language we can, we can re-describe in a third-party perspective from a more scientific angle. But in doing that redescription, what we are talking about is the same event, which means the same entities doing the same kind of action over the same given period of time. This language anchors events in time and space. Let me put it this way. Let's say I came home one day from work, and the cookie jar on the floor is smashed to pieces. And I tell my kids, <clears throat> kids, seems like the cookie jar smashed the ground. What happened? And they say to me, oh, Abba, I can't believe you are so naive. The cookie jar did not smash the ground. The ground smashed the cookie jar. I can't believe you're using such phenomenological language of experience. I don't respond to that by saying, well then, I guess nothing happened. We're all good. No, what I would say is, look, we all agree something happened. And that means someone is going to die. You shall surely die. Phenomenological language does not disconnect what Genesis says from reality. It immerses it in reality. It immerses it as history. In fact, that's what Genesis claims. Genesis, the most common verb form in Genesis, is one used of historical narrative because Moses is saying, this is history. This is what happened. This is what happened. And so miscommunication won't work. Because the language of Genesis is just too clear. And in fact, scholars have abandoned this idea for the most part of miscommunication because they realize the linguistics are determinative. So miscommunication won't work. And that brings us to the second option, which is myth. Myth. Myth argues that Genesis never intended to talk about what happened in space and time. Rather, it's talking about theological realities. And that way, it's a lot like a parable. And People have good reasons to argue for this. They argue based on the numerous parallels between the ancient Near Eastern myths and Genesis. And let me give you the top five. Here they are. Number one, both Genesis and the ancient Near Eastern myths have presence of the waters above and below the firmament. The ancient Near Eastern myths have a goddess named Tiamat, which sounds like the Hebrew word to home, which means the deep. That's the second one. Here's the third one. Both of these passages have light before the sun, moon, and stars. Both have mankind angering the gods, and both have a plant that confers immortality. You say, whoa, those are, those are pretty big similarities. At this point, we need to ask the question, how similar are the similarities? If you heard the ancient Near Eastern myths, would you just say, oh yeah, that's the same thing as Genesis? And with that in mind, let's go point for point. Number one, presence of the waters above and below the firmament. 
This is what the Egyptian myth says. It says that a god sneezed out two gods. And here's what the Babylonian myth says, that a god sliced the goddess in half and put her remains in the sky and on the ground. And that's supposed to be just like Genesis 1. Same thing. And you're thinking, that's not the same thing at all. Are you crazy? Well, that's your, this is supposed to teach us something. That what you're hearing with these similarities is after you've interpreted, distilled, and filtered what you have in the ancient Near Eastern myths. If you heard them raw and unedited, the similarities don't come out. The differences do. The differences do. And that helps us to even understand point number two. That the goddess Tiamat sounds like the Hebrew word to home, which means deep. Yeah, I guess Tiamat, to home, to, I mean, it's pretty, pretty similar. But one is a goddess, and the other one is the deep. One is supernatural, quote-unquote, and the other one's just stuff. And this difference between supernatural and stuff, scholars notice that, and here's what they call it. They say that Genesis, and this is their word, demythologizes. Demythologizes. Genesis isn't a myth. Genesis demythologizes. That's what's going on, and that accounts for number three, light before the sun, moon, and stars. The reason the ancient Near Eastern myths have light before the sun, moon, and stars is because they believe the sun, moon, and stars are gods and goddesses. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible attacks that notion. We know that the Bible, God does not even name the sun, moon, and stars to indicate that they are not a real entity. The Bible demythologizes. That's what it does. Point four, mankind angers the gods. Well, that's true. In the ancient Near Eastern myths, though, uh, they, they anger the gods because they get really noisy and annoying. In fact, the gods are worried about overpopulation. That is a more evolutionary concern, if you stop and think about it, than the concern of Genesis, which is about obedience to the one true God. But what about that plant, number five, that confers immortality? Now, that sounds pretty similar. Yeah, except for the fact that when it happens is different between the two accounts. One happens at creation, and one happens a lot later. Where it happens is different. One happens in Eden, and the other one happens in the ocean. Who it happens to is different. Adam, the head of all humanity, versus Gilgamesh, one of many people. And what it is is different. In Genesis, this is the plant that gives life. In the ancient Near Eastern myths, it just restores your vitality. It's like advanced oil of Olay. And so all of a sudden, you're just like, this is not the same thing. And that's my point. How similar are the similarities? And the answer is, when you hear the ancient Near Eastern myths, you don't hear the similarities. You hear the differences. You hear the differences. And that is intentional. And these differences that I just listed are not the only ones. Let me give you some more. There's just this simple difference in style. Ancient Near Eastern myths are written in poetry. And Genesis is written in narrative. Even the style clashes to show you that they're not the same thing. But it's not just style, it's also content. Ancient Near Eastern myths have battles and a lot of sex, which is not found at all in Genesis. And here's a really big difference. Ancient Near Eastern myths talk about evolution. They talk about evolution. In the Egyptian myths, it actually talks about how the world evolves. And we know that word in Egyptian means evolve because it is used to describe how a chicken becomes or evolves from, so to speak, an egg. Ancient Near Eastern myths believe in evolution. Genesis talks about creation. And so what we see here is the Bible is not like myth at all. And it's not even just different or opposite. The Bible actually attacks ancient Near Eastern myths. And the features of this are clear. In fact, they are so clear that this has been the consensus of scholarship for the last 30 years. Let me read you one quote 
from a scholar. He says this, creation is not equally prominent in all the ancient Near Eastern contexts in which the concept appears. Now listen to this. It seems to be unique in Genesis 1, which relates a once and for all event at the beginning of history. Scholars understand the features of Genesis 1 are clear. It is not a myth. It is totally different than any ancient Near Eastern myth. Now, these scholars might not believe Genesis 1 at all. They might not believe it at all, but what they remind us is you can't confuse what Genesis is. It's not miscommunication. It's not myth. And that leaves us with one option. This is myth-busting. This is myth-busting. Here's what we see. The linguistics of Genesis are clear, so it's not miscommunication. The features of Genesis are clear, and that means it's not a myth. And so it's the opposite of myth. Moses wrote it with features to oppose myth. And that means what is going on is this. Moses wrote not myth, but history. History that establishes theology which attacks and demythologizes. That's what we call myth-busting. And in doing so, Moses abides by the logic of Scripture about the nature of history and theology. Namely this, that history is the basis for theology. History grounds theology. History actualizes theology. History grounds theology with reality. And you say, how does that work? Well, recall 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul discusses the resurrection, does he not? And in discussing this, does he say, well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead— it's all right. It's all good. We still got the theology of the resurrection. And we know the answer. That's not going to work. Because if you don't have the history, you don't have the theology. And this is not just in 1 Corinthians 15. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses says, well, God will one day deliver Israel again in the future. And Israel says, well, how do you know? How do you know? And, and God says, because I delivered you the first time in the Exodus. But if that never happened, the argument falls apart. History grounds theology. In Malachi, God says, hey, Israel, I loved you. Well, how do we know that? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But if that never really happened, then how do you know? The whole argument falls apart. You need history for theology. But that's not just the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. Romans 5, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But if Christ never died for us, does God really love? Again, if you don't have the history, you don't have the theology. In 2 Peter 3, God assures us that he will judge the world again. Why? Because he judged it the first time. But if that never really happened, the whole argument falls apart. The way the Bible works is that history grounds theology. History actualizes theology. History anchors theology to reality. And in that way, Moses did not write myths, not only because of all the features therein, but because he couldn't have. It's theologically impossible for him to have because the logic of Scripture works one way. As Paul and Peter remind us, we don't follow cleverly devised what? Myths. In fact, this isn't just the way Moses wrote it. This is the way the biblical authors read it. That's how clear it is that the Scripture has a consistent reading of itself. Moses himself read it that way. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, we, we see in the Ten Commandments, God saying, I made the world in six days. In Deuteronomy 4.32, God says, on the day that he made man. 
Moses reads Genesis 1 through 3 as history. Solomon does so as well. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon says, remember the creator of your youth. And in Ecclesiastes 3, he talks about how man was made from the dust. Again, he reads it as history. So do the Psalms. Psalm 33 and 148 talk about how God commanded, and it was, just like Genesis 1. And in Psalm 104, it even arranges the psalm based on the days of creation. In light of that, the psalmists read Genesis as history. So does the chronicler. First Chronicles 1, 1, first word is Adam. Tracing Israel's lineage. Chronicler thought Adam was a historical person. Ezekiel 28 talks about Eden. Ezekiel thought Genesis was historical. Isaiah 45, 18 talks about how God made from the formless and void that which is inhabited and filled. That takes language and the very idea and summarizes Genesis 1. Isaiah read Genesis as historical. Joel and Amos do so as well. In Amos 4.13, it talks about how God made the land and the light. And in Joel and Amos, they talk about the return to an Edenic state. They read Genesis as historical. Malachi 2.10 talks about the unique creation of man. Malachi read Genesis as historical. And so from Moses to Malachi, the Old Testament reads Genesis all the same way. Historical. And it's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Jesus all read it this way. Matthew and Mark established the unique creation of man, bringing him together with woman as the basis for marriage. They read Genesis as historical. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to who? Adam. Why is that important? Because Luke read that and believed that Adam was historical. And you know John chapter 1. What does it say? In the beginning was the word. John understood that Jesus. Genesis was historical, but it's not just the gospel writers or Jesus. It's Paul, Acts 17, that God made from one man all the nations of the earth. Paul read Genesis as historical, and we see this even in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Not only is Adam the head of humanity, but we are in Adam, and thereby we can be in Christ. This is the way the gospel works. Paul read Genesis 1 through 3 as historical. Peter does so as well. In 2 Peter 3, Peter recalls how God made the world. And so the biblical writers, both Old and New Testament, read Genesis 1 through 3 the same. They read it as history. Let me put it this way. Who reads Genesis like us? Who reads it like us? You have Moses, Solomon, Psalms, Chronicles, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, and Jesus. I think we're in pretty good company, don't you? I think we're in pretty good company, don't you? And so the Bible is clear. It isn't miscommunication. The language is clear. It isn't myth. The features are clear. It is myth busting. It is history that Moses wrote clearly, and so the Bible reads it that way. And so you can't just say, well, this is all too complicated. No one can figure it out. I just, let's just give up and talk about something better. No, God has spoken. His word is clear. This is the way it was written. This is the way it was read. And this is the way we need to read it, and we need to surrender to it. We need to surrender to it. That's the real issue. We need to surrender to it, because Genesis is not miscommunication, where you can stick something into the ambiguities. Genesis is not myth, where you get to choose what it symbolizes. Genesis is myth-busting. It is history. It is the way things happen, and therefore the way things are. And you surrender to that, and we surrender to that. That's the issue. Well, that's the first consequence, or that's the first reminder of why this matters. The Bible is clear, but I said there were two. <clears throat> there were two, and here's the second. There are consequences when we lose Genesis 1 through 3. <coughs> there are consequences when we lose Genesis 
1 through 3. Like I said, this matters, and we just talked about the clarity, and so you can't just give up in the process. But even more, sometimes we have the question, well, what's really at stake? What, what is the ramifications if, if we just sweep this under the table? Is this really important? And that leads us to a discussion on the consequences, the consequences. I had the privilege of editing a book, Dr. Francis just mentioned it, What Happened in the Garden, produced by the faculty here at the university. And as the editor, I had the privilege of learning. I had the privilege of learning. That's probably the best thing about being an editor, is you get to learn. And I learned from my colleagues that creation is indeed first and foundational, and every detail matters. Every detail matters. If you start to change the way things happen, then you will start to change the way things are. And that will change your life and your worldview. That will change your life and your worldview. And let me give you some examples of this. You can talk about business ethics. Business ethics. You see, we believe in a certain view of scarcity because it's a result of the fall as thorns and thistles come into existence. We believe in scarcity. That drives our economic models. That doesn't just drive our economic models. That even drives how we view generosity. Because when we give to someone who has less, we do that because we have a viewpoint on what it means to have less. But if that's not the way it happened, then that's not the way it is. And you will have to rethink through every economic model and even why you should be generous. Your life's going to change. It's not just business ethics. It's medical ethics. It's medical ethics. We believe that death is a result of the fall. And therefore, death is wrong. It is a, it is a terrible consequence of sin. But if that's not the way it happened, and that's not the way it is, then we will have to change how we deal with life, death, and health. Because death might be normal. Death might be natural. Death might be neutral. Death might even be good. And that will change everything. That will change everything. Well, what about legal or judicial ethics? That's another factor. Genesis 1-3 through establishes how we get right and wrong, how right and wrong are defined. And even more than that, Genesis 1-3 through defines how God rights wrongs. That's the issue of justice. In fact, the way God deals with sin in Genesis 1 through 3 is the way that the Old Testament law deals with sin, which actually becomes a bedrock of judicial procedure in even our modern legal systems. But if that's not the way it happened, then that's not the way it is. And you're going to have to rethink through the issues of justice, not just what is right and what is wrong. You're going to have to rethink through not only how you make wrongs right, you're going to have to think about whether you should do that at all at all because that's not the way it is and that's not the way it is well here's another one what about the issue of gender and sex we believe that god made man male and female but if that's not the way it happened then that's not the way it is and something else will come in and redefine it something else will come in and redefine it and so what we learn here is if you change anything in genesis 1 through 3 if you start to tamper with the details if you start to dehistoricize it. If you change the way things happen, then you will change the way things are. And those will be changes that affect your life. That's the consequences. You will have to rethink how you do your job, how you help people medically and the issues of health, how you do justice, and how does your family actually work and how it is comprised. These changes will affect your life. That's what is at stake. Let me put it this way. 
if Genesis 1 through 3 doesn't tell you what happened and therefore what is, then something else will come in that will tell you how things really happened, and that will tell you what things really are, and that will cause the church to shift. That will cause the church to shift. And haven't we already begun to see that? With some of the issues that I've just mentioned, has not the church begun to change their views on certain things? Why? Because they have no conviction that this is the way it happened, and therefore this is the way it is. This is the way God made it. This is the way God created it. And so this is the way it is. They don't have a conviction about that, so they let something else come in and redefine it for them. And that's exactly what is happening right in front of our eyes. This is not hypothetical. This is now. And it will change your life. It will change your life. But it won't just change your life. It will change Christianity. It will change Christianity. It will change the faith. We have a discipline called systematic theology. It summarizes and synthesizes all that the Bible teaches. All that it means doctrinally to be a Christian. And there are ten categories within systematic theology. Here they are. Theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, bibliology, angiology, anthropology, homoradiology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology. Ten categories that summarize Christian doctrine. If you dehistoricize Genesis 1 through 3, you can easily shift 9 out of the 10. Easily shift 9 out of the 10. And some of you are wondering, what's the one that survives? Angiology, maybe. I mean, you could argue from Job that the angels rejoice to see the creation of the world, and so maybe there's some changing there. But 9 out of 10, easy. Here are the first three. Theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, the doctrines of the Trinity, the doctrines of the Godhead. All of these doctrines revolve around the fundamental distinction that God is the creator and everything else is the creation. God is uncreated. Everything else is what? Created. There is a massive distinction, a massive divergence between God and the rest. That's what makes him divine. In fact, that's how John proves in part the divinity of Christ. Because he asserts over and over in Hebrews 1 and John 1 and Colossians 1 that Jesus is the creator. Because if you can prove that Jesus is the creator, creator is the unique position of God. But if that's not the way it happened, and that's not the way it is. And God is a little bit less God now. That's what's at stake. God is a little bit less divine. That's going to change our theology. That's what's going to change our belief. But it's not just the Godhead. It's also soteriology. It's also the doctrines of salvation. David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a what? A clean heart, a new heart. And he's building on the language of creation in Genesis 1 because he wants God to do something revolutionary, new, making something out of nothing. But if that's not the way it happened, then that's not the way it is, and it undermines what David is talking about, salvation. Same thing goes with Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that the God who made light shines light into our hearts, but if that's not the way it happened, then that's not the way it is. And we're going to have to adjust how we understand salvation it will undermine that foundation. It will erode that foundation. But it's more than that. We know in Romans 5 that Paul says those in Adam are those also who could be in Christ. That is the paradigm of how the gospel operates. In Adam, in Christ. That's the fundamental gospel logic. But if we aren't in Adam, because he never existed, because it never happened, then we can't really exactly be in Christ. The foundation isn't just eroded. It's eradicated. We will have to change the gospel. We will have to change the gospel. But it's not just salvation. It's also the, our doctrine of sin. 
why right and wrong exists, the nature of original sin, that is why everyone is sinful because we sinned in Adam, or even the nature of death are all established by Genesis 1-3. through And now, if you change Genesis 1-3, through you're going to have to change the entire study of sin, hermartiology. Let me put it this way. Why would you tell someone the gospel if you don't know what right and wrong is, you're not sure that everyone is sinful, and you're not even sure if the wages of sin are that bad? This is going to change everything in our doctrine. And it's not just sin, it's also our doctrine of man. It's also our doctrine of man. Anthropology. We fundamentally, as Christians, define anthropology by being in Adam. That is the defining point. But if there were many hominids around, and Adam was just one of them that God selected, then people can actually be outside of Adam. People can be outside of Adam, and that changes everything in anthropology. Let me put it this way. If the logic of Scripture is all those in Adam can be those in Christ, uh, but not everyone's in Adam because there were many hominids at the time, what's the first question you have to ask someone before you preach to them the gospel? Well, can you prove to me that you're in Adam? Because if you're not, I shouldn't really preach the gospel to you because it doesn't apply. That's the change that we're looking at. And on top of that, even the distinction between male and female, biblical manhood and womanhood, part of anthropology will change because it's rooted in Genesis 1 through 3. Well, it's not just about man, it's also about the new man. This is where we get into ecclesiology, the study of the church. Paul uses the term one new man in Ephesians chapter 2 to speak of how Jews and Gentiles now come together to become one new man, a man like Adam that exceeds Adam, where there is no ethnicity or race. It proves that the gospel handles the consequences of sin, which includes racism and what divides mankind. But if Adam really never existed, and it was really never that way, then this whole point of the church is a lie. It's a lie. And in fact, there is no hope that you will ever solve the issues of racism or ethnocentricity. It's a lie. Speaking of no hope, let's talk about eschatology. Categorically, in eschatology, the study of the future things, we know that God is going to create a new what? Creation. But if he never really created an old creation. We have a category mistake here. But it's not just a category mistake, it's even quality. We know from the Old Testament to the New Testament that when God regains paradise, it really is paradise. It's Eden, where he really wipes away every tear from our eyes, where there is no sin and death, where there really is peace on earth, where the consequences of sin are gone and the centrality of God is present. But if that's not the way it was, eschatology is a lie. It's an exaggeration, it's a hyperbole, it's a myth, and you have no hope. You have no hope, and there is no resolution. Well, that's eight out of the ten, and you say, well, what's the ninth one? Bibliology. Bibliology. The Bible claims that it is authoritative, it is inerrant, and it is sufficient. And when you allow something else to creep in and start to define theology, <coughs> you undermine bibliology. But I think you can see, if you undermine bibliology... You undermine everything, and that's my point. Nine out of ten. Nine out of ten, easy. Do you know what's at stake if we give up Genesis 1 through 3? Let me give you one word. Christianity. Christianity is at stake. And you don't use this as a weapon. You don't go around and talk to people and say, you're a threat to Christianity by what you believe. You better change right now. No, this is not a weapon. This is to remind us, to warn us, and to alert us this issue matters. This is important. This is essential. We need to think about this. We need to love this doctrine. 
and we need to talk about it with others. We need to talk about it with others. And that brings us to exactly where we began. To be sure, the Bible instructs us on how we handle other people. We need to have love. We need to have patience. We need to have humility. We need to endure even harm as we disciple others. And in fact, that brings up the important point. This topic, like all topics of Scripture, are not to be discussed really in debate. This is about discipleship. This is about investing your life in other people. That's where this should be spoken. This is not about debate. This is about discipleship. And for this very reason, we can't ignore the topic. We can't ignore the topic. The Bible's clear. God has spoken. He cared about enough to put it in his word, and so we should care about it as well. And the consequences of this are massive. They are massive. They will change your life. They will change Christianity. And we already start to see that in the church even now. And so what we need to do is lovingly help the church to recover that Genesis 1-3, through 3, it's not myth, it's not miscommunication, it's the way things happened and the way things are. And that begins with us. You see, I sometimes think that we might regard our faith as just something out there. Oh, we know it, and we know it's true, but it's out there. It, it doesn't really shape our lives. It's not really in reality for us. It just comes up from time to time. But we've been talking about today is that the Bible, from the very beginning, is real. This is who God is. This is what he's about. This is what he's doing. This is what matters for now, then, and for eternity. And so before we go out, and start talking with others. We need to live this. We need to live that Scripture defines our lives. Scripture determines how we look at the world, what we think, how we prioritize, what we value, what we think is important, how we live, and how we die. And we live this out because we know the Bible is reality from beginning to end. Shall we pray? Lord, we repent of the times when we have thought of your word as just a confession, just something we say, as opposed to what is. Lord, your word is so real, it is more real than the ground we are on and the air we are breathing. Your plan is what will last. Your agenda is what is eternal. Your purposes are the truth. And those are established in the opening chapters of your word. Those are real not fiction. You did these things, and therefore this is the way things are. May it be, O oh God, that we just not only understand these issues, but not so that we can make an argument, but so that we can surrender our life to you, and that we would have a conviction, this is the way it happened, and therefore this is the way I live. May this all be for your glory and your name we pray.